This is KVR, Kaiju Vision Radio, episode 38, Half Human, the Story of the Abominable Snowman. Kaiju and Tokusatsu fans, and welcome to Kaiju Vision Radio, a podcast about the appreciation of Kaiju and Tokusatsu movies and discovering their historical and cultural value. I'm Brian Scherchel. And this is the season two premiere of Kaiju Vision, and this is the kickoff to an entire season of Toho Tokusatsu and non Godzilla Kaiju films. We will be having episodes for the anime movies, which uh, we'll, uh, I'll be putting all of those anime movies into one episode and doing that. And then, of course, our season finale will be Godzilla, King of the Monsters. There will be 18 episodes this season, and episodes will be airing every other week, approximately. You can come see the whole schedule and the DVD guide for all of the movies for this season on kaijuvision.com. The Toho Tokusatsu movies this season will start in 1955 with this episode, and they will go on chronologically until 1977 with War in Space. The journey through the Godzilla movies is over, and sticking with Toho makes sense, as many of these movies are very well known in the Godzilla fan community. A few of these movies do not have kaiju in them, but they are tokusatsu movies, which that is with Japanese for special effects films. I have a lot to update you on, uh, considering this is the first episode really about a movie since uh, the end of May uh, this year. And we had two great interviews as well. One was with John LeMay, who is a, a kaiju writer, mostly nonfiction. And then another one with Daniel DeMana of the Godzilla Novelization Project. You can also check those out. They turn out very good. Uh, they sound great. Two great guests. Definitely check out the YouTube video of the G-Fest panel this year that Kaiju Vision had. We absolutely killed it. It was a fantastic performance. Even better than that, though, is our Shin Godzilla episode, which was the season one finale. I spent so much time formulating the way to present this movie in the best possible way. It was the most work ever on any episode for this show. The first hour of the episode is incredible. The related topic for that episode is 311, and we went through 311 chronologically as we went through the movie chronologically, so it was a side-by-side -side analysis. There's no way to understand Shin Godzilla better than to listen to that episode. It's fantastic. Also, not knowing about 311 is no way to watch Shin Godzilla, because then you're not going to understand what's going on. In Season 2, also, I have plans for a couple of guests to show up as co-hosts. And I'm not going to say who it is. It's going to be a surprise. But I guarantee, listeners, that you will like it. Getting on from the updates, in this episode, I will be covering the 1955 film Half Human, the story of the abominable snowman, directed by Ishiro Honda, with special effects by Eiji Tsuburaya, produced by Tomoyuki Tanaka, and starring Akira Takarada. So it's a lot of very familiar names. It's a kaiju movie, but the kaiju in this aren't so giant as they usually are. The related topic for this episode is the genetic origin of the Ainu people. It was made the same year as Godzilla Raids Again, uh, and so this episode may be a little shorter, a little bit more like a Godzilla Raids Again kind of length of an episode. Even though there's plenty to talk about with this movie, it is pretty easy. 
But before I get to the opinion and analysis section, I will start with part one, which is a short description of the film, not a plot synopsis, but in fact, the podcast's signature method to arm the listeners with the facts about the film. You're listening to KVR, Kaiju Vision Radio. The Abominable Snowman is partially a force of nature, but it possesses some human characteristics. It can be a nurturing or a destructive force, depending on who it encounters and if it's angry or not. Its primary drives are survival, hunting for food, and taking care of the other kaiju in the movie, Snowman's Child, who has the same drive for survival. The creatures are the last of their kind, and they're disconnected from the outside world. For the human plotline, it seems that there are quite a few characters in this story. First we have our Alpine Club members. Takeshi Ijima is a capable and morally sound member of the Alpine Club at Toei University. His girlfriend is Machiko Takeno. She's devoted to Takeshi and to finding her lost brother and goes through a lot of anguish in the film. Dr. Koizumi is a determined and serious professor who is dead set on finding the mysterious monster who took Machiko's brother and killed two others. Our antagonists are Oba, an animal broker, and his big-boned, mustached henchman, referred to in some credits as Chubby Thug. They are exploitative, ruthless, and violent. Lastly, there are the decidedly primitive mountain villagers. They worship the abominable snowman. The main character from the village is Shika, a forthright and humane woman. The grand elder of this village is a violent, abusive authoritarian. The human and kaiju plots are unified. Nearly all the human actions revolve around the kaiju. The Alpine Club wants to research it and rescue a captive human. The antagonists want to capture it, and the natives worship and feed it. Rather than the snowman being the essential issue to solve, this story is more of a lesson about the dark side of humanity. Oba and his henchmen kill snowman's child and kidnap the snowman. The community of mountain villagers appears to be a model backwards society. Though the Alpine Club had the best intentions in mind, which was rescuing Takeno, they are the ones who end up killing the snowman in the end after it kidnaps Machiko. The story, based on a work by Shigeru Kayama and a screenplay by Takeo Murata, is a simple story with a moderate number of characters, an easily discernible theme, and a relatively dense plot. Special effects were headed by the great Eiji Tsuburaya. The kaiju suits are well-developed and convincing, the faces are a Japanese take on the yeti, with well-defined features, making the kaiju seem ancient and scary. The on-location black-and-white photography looks good, as do the special effects, notably the scene where the humans and vehicles fall from the cliffs. The outdoor scenes were filmed at the Hakuba Ski Resort in Nagano Prefecture in the Japanese Alps. The film does contain a small amount of stop-motion effects. The production value isn't low, though the budget figures for this movie are elusive. However, it does appear that sufficient care was put into the effects. The tone is mostly dark and serious, and there's a sufficient level of gravity in what is taking place. With Snowman Kaiju and a mountain village with its inhabitants, this is a fantasy film. Given that the kaiju film genre was quite small at the time, this film could be considered experimental, but the themes and circumstances of the movie are not all that experimental. Nevertheless, this is the first non-Godzilla kaiju movie ever made by Toho, so it is breaking new ground in that way. The film mostly reinforces the style of the original Godzilla film with its dark, serious tone. It reinforces the style of the original King Kong with its plot and theme. The movie is geared toward an audience that would like kaiju and tokusatsu movies. 
it's somewhat related to the King Kong movies, and the first Godzilla movie had been released the year before, so the creators of the movie were going for that type of an audience. Half Human was released in Japan on August 14, 1955. Box office and earnings figures for this film were not readily available. Regardless, this film was not a smash hit and likely not a big moneymaker. The Japanese version hasn't been made commercially available, and the American releases are few and far between. This is because the movie is effectively banned in Japan due to the way the mountain villagers are depicted. Toho did release a 10-minute digest version of the film on a 1984 VHS and later Laserdisc titled Toho Giant Monster SF Encyclopedia. This movie isn't very well known and doesn't have a large fan following. Posters and other promotional material for this movie are rare and expensive. The Japanese version is rated 6.1 on that movie database, and the American version is rated 3.0. The American version of this movie was significantly altered. The original 94-minute movie was reduced to 63 minutes. Dialogue scenes were cut, and Masaru Sato's score was removed. At no point do we hear Japanese dialogue, and there's no dubbing. Footage and voiceovers of John Carradine giving exposition about the story were added in. He acts as the Raymond Burr for this movie, playing an anthropologist named John Rayburn. There is a part in the movie where Snowman's child is dissected. There is some talk about how the Snowman could be the missing link, or related to the Neanderthals. The result of these alterations was a bad movie. It was first released in American theaters on May 17, 1957. It was also released on December 10, 1958 by DCA, Distributors Corporation of America, on a double bill with Monster from Green Hell, a B-movie about a giant wasp. The forces at play include civilized humanity versus the primitive, isolated, natural world, much like King Kong. There is conflict between groups of humans who wish to study, exploit, or protect the abominable snowman, as well as those trying to save friends and loved ones from it. The film depicts a wide spectrum of humanity's good and bad sides, with Ijima and Shika on, the ext on one extreme, and Oba and his henchmen on the other, with quite a few characters in between. It becomes known that the snowman is not an inherently violent creature, and in fact it harbored loneliness, which is why it left its home in the first place. The dark, serious, and arguably realistic theme of the story is that what happened to the abominable snowman is the sum total of humanity's sins. The snowman's half-human characteristics make it violent at times and nurturing at other times, much like humanity itself. In some ways, the snowman is more human than the humans are. The ultimate theme of this film is that humanity is its own worst enemy. That concludes part one. You're listening to KVR, Kaiju Vision Radio. Part two of the podcast is the opinion and analysis section. I first saw this film about three to four weeks ago. It was recommended that I put it on the list for this season, and I immediately ordered it and added it to the list before I saw it. I've seen it enough times now that it's in my head just as much as one of the Godzilla movies. I'll begin with the most interesting aspect of this movie, which is where I left off at the end of part one, the theme of the story and the significance of the title Half Human. So, the title is Half Human, but who is it referring to as half-human? It could be referring to the villagers aside from Chica, or the movie could be referring to the Alpine Skiers Club, given that they kill the snowman at the end, even though Ijima says, don't shoot it. 
or maybe it's talking about the snowman if you want for the obvious direction and that his physical features show that he could be half human. It could also be the villains because they're only half human in the way that they act. Either way, there do seem to be quite a few characters that I simply do not like, and I think maybe the audience felt the same way. Overall, though, I do like this movie. This is uh, probably the only black-and-white movie that's going to be covered this entire season. But uh, this is the 1955, it's the exact same year as when Godzilla Raids Again came out. For a little bit of background, this is about, of course, the Abominable Snowman. The literal Japanese title is Monster Snowman. Other Abominable Snowman movies have been made around this time, and they were made because of the footprints found in the snow at Mount Everest by Eric Shipton and Dr. Michael Ward in 1951. They said it came from an Abominable Snowman, but we've never seen one of those yet. The other two movies were called The Snow Creature and The Abominable Snowman. So at last we found out what Ishiro Honda was doing when Godzilla Raids Again was being made. He was making this. This is a lesser-known film than Godzilla Raids Again, though, and it has been less accessible to the public, especially with respect to the Japanese version, and I'll be going into that later. Now, of course, Godzilla fans will recognize Momoko Kochi and Akira Takarada from the original Godzilla movie released one year before this was. They played Emiko Yamane and Hideto Ogata, respectively. Kokuten Kodo, who plays the village grand elder, also played the old fisherman in the original Godzilla movie. Haru Nakajima is also in this, but he's pretty much an extra, a much smaller part, and he's not the kaiju this time. I recognize Nobuo Nakamura, and this is his first appearance of many in Kaiju Vision's Season 2 lineup of non-Godzilla Toho movies. He was in some Kurosawa movies, including Ikiru, which is maybe my favorite Japanese movie ever, as well as Yasujiro Ozu's Tokyo Story from 1953, which is marvelous. I want to mention the score, which is by Masaru Sato. I like the score, and you can tell that Sato was destined for making great music even then. The music is mysterious, and it also gets across the desolate conditions that people are in. The music meshes with the action very well. One of Ishiro Honda's favorite types of scenes to make were mountain climbing scenes. Now, everyone who's seen these Godzilla movies as much as I have can remember a few of these scenes popping up. The one that came to mind most of all was in the original Ghidorah movie, Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, from 1964. Another thing I really liked about this movie was all of the snow scenes look great. The snow and skiing scenes remind me of Alfred Hitchcock's Spellbound with Ingrid Bergman and Gregory Peck. I'm also reminded of The Thing with all of the snow all over and the horrific events. I'm also reminded, forgive me, of the movie The Legend of Boggy Creek 2, which was riffed in Mystery Science Theater. It's one of my favorite episodes. It involves a hairy, ape-like Sasquatch creature. Its juvenile is kidnapped, and they are misunderstood. It takes place in Arkansas, and, well, there are actually a lot of similarities between Boggy Creek 2 and Half Human once you get to thinking about it. It's also easy to recognize parallels between this movie and the two movies made up to this point in the King Kong series, the original and Son of Kong. This movie reminds me of King Kong pretty heavily, with the kidnapping, the exploiting for profit. The ending consists of a damsel in distress and the tragic demise of the creature falling to its death. And it reminds me of Son of Kong, with the presence of the juvenile version of Kong. 
It reminds me of Mothra, King Kong versus Godzilla, Mothra versus Godzilla 1964, and the British movie Gorgo, all of which have businessmen kidnapping and exploiting kaiju for profit. There's a lot of good atmosphere going on with this film. There's a sense of hopelessness against insurmountable odds. Snow environments, whether in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, The Thing, or The Shining, are oppressive, and they enhance atmosphere. It's like a cold version of a desert, essentially. Not very far into the film, we have a classic instance of a snowstorm happening, and then an avalanche cutting off some of the group from the rest of the group. It's only right before that that we start to get some of the real mystery going on. When this woman appears, and she's in a fur coat, and she's actually mistaken for a beast by Machiko. But um, this is interesting because she is, this woman is treated as kind of an outsider already. She looks a little different from everyone. She's pretty out there with the staring as the avalanche happens. It's like she has some kind of sixth sense about avalanches. She's so experienced. And uh, it really sort of sets up some of the mystery that's going on. Then the phone rings, and then we get our lot more terror at this point. And, and they pick up the phone, and there are people screaming, and there's roaring, and there's gunshots, all of this. And then when they find the two people who were killed in the first round uh, by the abominable snowman, and then the tension is ramped up at that point. They return in the spring to try to find Machiko's brother, and our scientist, he's more concerned about finding the creature. Our alpine skiers group, they go into the wilderness to try to find the creature. And then they come upon a bear, and they realize that they didn't shoot it. It was killed by something else. And then they hear this huge roar, and then that convinces them that they're on the right track, that there is indeed an animal somewhere. And I'm wondering if the fact that it's a bear has anything to do with the history of bears of significance to the Ainu people, because that kind of uh, is noticeable once you learn a little bit about Ainu culture. Then we have our encounter with the monster at the camp, which is also a Boggy Creek 2 occurrence. Even though they want to discover the monster, they also have guns as a way to kill it, which is that's also Boggy Creek 2. Takeshi vanishes, and then has an encounter with Oba and his gang, and then they beat him up. He wakes up in the mountain village where Chiga has upset the natives, and by, it's because she took in Takeshi. The natives end up taking Takeshi, and I'm talking about the scene where they tie him up, and they hang him off the cliff, still alive, and it's to let the birds pick him apart, and to eventually starve to death, I would assume, as well. It's a really extremely cruel way to get rid of someone upon uh, seeing this in this movie. Uh, the snowman rescues Takeshi, and he escapes back to the camp. And Takeshi realizes right there that the snowman is a friend, and that he can be friendly, but it seems as if Takeshi's the only one who really truly knows that there is a very much more human side to the abominable snowman. It's a rather interesting scene there. Uh, it's on the side of the mountain. Chika is there. She runs into Oba and ch our chubby thug that he has with him. And at the beginning of the scene, it seems like she is striking a pose for a calendar. It's, she has her legs like in a certain way, and she's staring off into the distance off the mountain. It, it totally looks like she's doing a calendar pose. But anyway, they sure don't look like it. They, they say that they're also students. 
Another scene that's interesting to reflect on is the part where Oba and Chubby Thug and company, they find the juvenile snowman. It's a hard scene to watch these guys subdue the poor thing and to and, and to hear its loud, high-pitched cries. Oba lures the snowman out of his lair with the, by possessing the young one and making it cry out so that they can capture the older one. Oba and the natives then run into each other, and Oba shoots the Grand Elder, who then, in his dying sort of uh, Francisco Franco moment, he blames Chica for everything. Oba and company get their little moment of victory when not only do they capture the older abominable snowman, but then they also are able to capture the younger one. The older one then kills the chubby thug, and then Oba kills the snowman's child. And in a great moment, later on, the snowman kills Oba. And the part with the snowman throwing Oba off the cliff it's actually two separate pieces of film put together for a few seconds because he is, he, oh, by, he's his own little piece of film. And then it shows, and the, the rest of it is the snowman throwing. So they must have had the, th- the snowman throwing some other object as a stand in. And then they put in, uh, they taped in that film uh, with that second piece on there. Later, the snowman captures Machiko from the camp, and Chika unites with everyone to find where the snowman has taken her. Then they finally find Takeno's remains, which is, uh, that is Machiko's brother, with a note saying how nice the snowman was to him. And it turns out that the creature brought him food, but he couldn't eat. Later, they find Snowman's child dead, and they discover that the snowman had probably been eating poisonous mushrooms, which explains why so few of them are left. Then we get a deep reason for why the snowman left its habitat in the first place. It was lonely. That also explains it going berserk with uh, the loneliness, too, besides the fact that humans had killed its child. And that's already a pretty good part of the story with this aspect of the loneliness. This loneliness was not present in the King Kong movies, but it does make sense here. Unfortunately, the students end up shooting the snowman after Chica tries to get him to drop Machiko, but then he falls into a boiling pit along with Chica, which is kind of a downer at the end. Uh, One aspect of the story that sticks out is the portrayal of humanity not at its best. Our businessmen are kidnappers for profit. Some of the students shoot at the snowman first, first and ask questions later. Most of the natives are portrayed quite negatively. This is definitely not one of Ishiro Honda's Brotherhood of Man kind of stories, is it? While Honda often showed humanity at at its best in his movies, this movie more shows that he directed what Toho gave him. Maybe the only Brotherhood of Man is the audience not liking quite a few of these characters. I have also seen the American version of this movie, uh, and it's very boring and talky. Names are changed, the timeline of the scenes is juggled around, the replacement sound effects are probably worse than the replacement music is, but the music's pretty bad, too. The sounds the kaiju make are the absolute worst. The surgeon who does the autopsy says how Snowman's child is half-human and half-animal, but then after that he says it is probably more human than animal. Then he says that when it's full-grown, the creature will have mostly human anatomy. So I guess it's just whatever. That, that scene it felt like 25 minutes. Whenever I think of John Carradine, I think of the unearthly, which you don't want to watch unless it's the Mystery Science Theater version of it, and because it, it doesn't go down very easily, it's like trying to eat a bar of soap. 
He was also in Night Train to Mundo Fine, or as I know it, Red Zone Cuba, which is an incredibly famous episode in Mystery Science Theater. Now, because of the way that the Ainu people are being portrayed in this movie, this movie is actually banned in Japan, as I said in part one. The mountain villagers, uh, that's what the Ainu people are supposed to be, given uh, a snowy locale as well, uh, that would be sort of referencing Hokkaido. The Hisabetsu Barakuman have also taken offense at this movie because they are also uh, discriminated uh, villagers. They were offended by the overall backwardness of the villagers, as well as their deformed appearance, which implies inbreeding. So that's where they're coming from with saying that, you know, with objecting to this. The Ainu are somewhat known as an insular group that doesn't really assimilate, and the mountain villagers in this film do indeed shut themselves away from outsiders. The movie does depict the people in this village as uncivilized. The Grand Elder is the worst, given his cruel beatings of Chica. The deformities, though, of some of the villagers have probably the most offensive aspect of this. And we are talking about a, a group of marginalized people, and that's what's going on here. And the Ainu have their own interest groups, of course, and when they're, when this aspect of, of this history that we're going to get into it comes to light, it, it, all of this makes logical sense. Another consideration is that quite a few movies made during this period in Japan depicted people who lived outside Tokyo as backward and not quite civilized. This included those people depicted in this movie, people from Western Japan, Kyushu, Shokoku, etc. The closest thing that I can relate to this is the term Middle America. That term highlights the contrast between the coasts of the country and the more rural and suburban interior. Flyover country is another term I thought, but that's more of a stereotype of other people's stereotypes, though the term can be and is used as a pejorative. Hillbillies might also be another pejorative that's perhaps close to this kind of situation. Due to this movie being banned, there is another film that I thought of with connect that connects to this movie, and that would be Disney's Song of the South from 1946. The depiction of African Americans is viewed to be less than flattering, as is the depiction of, with this movie, their depiction of the Ainu. I will say, though, that Zippity-Doo-Dah is one of the absolute greatest Disney songs of all time. That song won an Academy Award for Best Song in 1947. Zippity-Doo-Dah is probably second only to When You Wish Upon a Star. That's maybe the only thing that, that, that can beat that. And James Baskett, who played Uncle Remus, won an honorary Academy Award for his portrayal of Uncle Remus. I myself saw Song of the South in the theater in its last theater release, which was in 1986. It was incredibly surreal for me to watch that, seeing the live-action humans and then these animations put together at the same time. It's like the first time you see that when you're a kid, you, you never quite know, like it's just something magical and, and that's movie magic at its most pure. And it, it was a big deal. And to think that it was 1946, way back when, when they actually had this, it must've just blown people away back then. Now, the point of why I bring up Song of the South is that actually Whoopi Goldberg said that this movie should be re-released, Song of the South. And that is because uh, it's pretty much coming from the, the direction of perhaps Disney should re-release this movie instead of throwing it down the memory hole and pretending it never happened. 
And because when you pretend that that never happened, then people aren't going to learn anything from it. And you're also getting rid of the things that were great in this movie, too. And preventing the public from accessing the movie, it, it's not going to stop like all of racism happening. And maybe by explaining what happened with this movie, you can explain really how racism works. But uh, to this day, though, Half Human is still banned in Japan, although it, it was shown at, I believe, a couple of uh, film, film festivals. But that would be about it. And it's really up to the Japanese, it's up to the Ainu people, it's up to all of culture to and society to actually uh, decide if you know, what we should be doing with this movie and if we can learn anything culturally about it. Well, that's food for thought, I suppose. Uh, we're, I'm going to now conclude part two, and, uh, and we're going to move on to related topics. You're listening to KVR, Kaiju Vision Radio. In part three of the podcast, I will be analyzing a topic that was either brought up in the film or was going on at the time the film was released. For this episode, I chose the genetic origin of the Ainu people as the topic, and it's because the Ainu people are obviously directly brought up, uh, except all, all in name, uh, by this movie. So I'll be throwing in some information about the background of the Ainu people, as well as all of their interesting genetic traits. The Ainu people came to Japan uh, between 14,000 and 300 BC, and the Jomon culture of Japan was the forerunner of the Ainu people. The Ainu retained Jomon culture instead of intermixing and being assimilated by the Yayoi culture, which came much later to Japan, which was around 2,300 years ago. So the Ainu and the Jomon culture, they were the original inhabitants of Japan. So in other words, they are indigenous people. And another thing that's interesting is that the people of the Ryukyu Empire in the south, which includes areas like Okinawa, uh, they ha and the Ainu both have a common ancestry. So, so both the Ainu and the Ryukyuans were the original indigenous inhabitants of those lands. Some more information about the Ainu. Uh, they have been repressed and have been discriminated against for quite a long time. Uh, the Ainu often resisted the Japanese empire historically as it expanded. The empire was doing a policy of assimilation and cultural supremacy. The Ainu were restricted from speaking their own language, and the Ainu were looked at as uncivilized. Uh, the Japanese census figures are a little bit murky on how many Ainu are actually in the country. I've seen uh, 25,000, but uh, others say that the real figure might be up to two times that. Their genetics has proliferated uh, much more than that, though. Like many ethnic groups, this group of Ainu, they are reasserting themselves and they're starting to refine their culture. They're just they're rediscovering their culture and learning the language again. It was also a big deal when a man of Ainu descent was elected to the national diet. So I'm not going to call the Ainu a minority because it's much more accurate to say that they are an indigenous people. Now I'm going to get into some more scientific things here and talk about specific genetic groups. I'm going to stick to the facts as always. I've been very interested in genetics for a long time. I had my DNA processed in 2007 and have researched this ever since because it's a very interesting topic. Genetic research is getting more precise 
every day, and a lot of people are having their genetics run, and they find out things about themselves, their race, their ancestry, their nationality. They find that they're much more complicated genetically than they thought they were. That one commercial, though, from Ancestry.com is so silly, though, because they it has the guy who's thought he was German and he's dressing up in lederhosen all the time, apparently, in private or whatever he was doing, and then he realized that he was Irish, and now he turns into this big stereotypical Irish person. Um, don't don't try that at home, folks. Just don't don't try to just turn into some sort of completely different culture that you never knew you had or or whatever. D all things in moderation. Rather silly. A lot of information I'm going to give you is pretty readily available. Uh, and, and you can check uh, on, I would say, go to 23andMe, check your own genetics and see what happens. Uh, you can find out things about your ancestry that are, in fact, very, uh, very interesting. One important thing to realize is that if you go back far enough, everybody came from Africa. Millions of people are having their DNA tested, and the results make them rethink the way they view themselves. I encountered a few surprises myself. Thankfully, they were pleasant surprises. When I first got my results from 23andMe, I was not surprised necessarily about my uh, ancestry composition as a whole. The plurality of my DNA ended up being uh, German and French, and then followed by the British Isles, which is uh, not very surprising at all for me, because since I knew that I was German and that I had some English in me. However, when you have your ancestry run, if you're a man, you get the added benefit of seeing your paternal ancestry haplogroup, and that is based on the Y chromosome, Y DNA. And the Y chromosome tree is essentially a family tree of the paternity of all of humanity. Now, a haplotype is a group of genes inherited together from a single parent, and a haplogroup is a group of similar haplotypes that share a common ancestor with a single nucleotide polymorphism mutation. Now, what's important now a lot of that is that these haplotypes share a common ancestor. And so, as the haplogroup changes and migrates, different things happen. So what I'm going to be talking about from now on is about just the Y chromosome, Y DNA, and that's it. So as the Y chromosome mutates, it adds segments, and that's what happens. And so then you can look at one Y chromosome, you can differentiate it from all the others, but at the same time, it has the historical progression, all those pieces, and then that's how they can relate your DNA back to when that mutation occurred and where. When new societies form, common Y chromosomes emerge with the same number and type of segments, and those then proliferate. So at the beginning of the Y DNA tree is you know, that, you know, the sort of hypothetical atom. After that, you get haplogroups A and B, which are the, the oldest. And then as you further go, you, as further down the tree you go, the newer uh, all these haplogroups are. So now we're going to get to where did the Ainu people come from specifically? And they come from a group called Haplogroup D. And it is very common in the Ainu and the Ryukyuans and people in northeastern Japan, more than southwestern Japan, areas like Shikoku and the Osaka region. If you go further up the tree to the past, Haplogroup D is found in the Andaman Islands and in Tibet. There are a lot of com commonalities in the Y chromosome between Tibetans and Burmans and the Ainu and the Ryukyuans and the Andamanese. Still going on the Y chromosome tree, haplogroup D's closest relatives are those in haplogroup E. Haplogroup D 
broke off from Africa 50 to 60,000 years ago. Now, regarding the way that people came out of Africa, there were different groups at different eras that left Africa probably for different reasons. Migrations are very interesting to track. But one of the absolute first groups was haplogroup D. They were one of the first to go out of Africa, possibly one of the first groups to enter into Asia. When the break-off from Africa occurred for haplogroup D, it broke off of a group called DE. And then haplogroup E also broke off from there later, and so that's how those two relate to each other. At one point, D and E were actually the same group. And then once they traveled into Asia, this group went around the Indian subcontinent, and they ended up in the Andamanese Islands. And from there, groups broke off from that area. One went to Tibet, and then some went around to Japan, and some went to Burma. So it's a different little pockets. One of the important genetic variations here is a haplogroup called D-M55. The first man to carry that branch on the Y chromosome may have lived in Tibet 60,000 years ago, which is a very long time. His descendants migrated to Japan around 20,000 years ago. And this was during the Ice Age, when there was in fact a land bridge between Japan and the Korean Peninsula. This genetic variation of the Y chromosome, which is D-M55, is found in 80% of the Ainu people and in 60% of the Ryukyuans, which that includes Okinawa, among other islands. Hence, these are the first settlers of Japan. And this society, uh, the Jom- what ended up being the Jomon culture, they were a hunter-gatherer society, but they were also fishermen and farmers. Thus, the, the first Japanese that came to Japan, they were there for a very, very long time. Now, another important distinction here is that this group of people from Haplogroup D, who ended up becoming the Ainu, these people are non-Caucasians. The Ainu look more African and less Asian. Now, the ones who look more stereotypically Asian are the, the Yayoi culture, And that was another wave of immigrants into Japan that occurred roughly 2,300 years ago, and that makes up most of the rest of the Japanese people as we know them today. Now, when the Yayoi culture uh, started going into Japan, uh, the Ainu were relegated to the northern areas and eastern areas of Japan because of the influx of the new immigrants and their expansion. And this was a cultural and military conquest that took place. And this group is from Haplogroup O. And they proliferated in Japan, especially during the period 300 BC to 250 AD, which uh, coincides with the Han Dynasty in China. The Yayoi people brought agriculture to Japan, and they had incredible advantages over the Jomon, and the population of Japan changed. And the Yayoi culture also brought Shinto to Japan. Haplogroup O is more common in western Japan and in southern Japan, especially around the Osaka region. The numbers that I'm going to give you now for percentages of the two haplogroups, uh, that is, uh, some of these figures are open to interpretation, uh, depending on who you get them from. But these are the groups that, that I found for uh, all of this. From the information I got, haplogroup D makes up 46.6% of Japanese as well as 36.8% of Tokyo and 48.2% of the Kanto region, but only 26.8% of Western Japan. 
Now, haplogroup O makes up almost all the rest of what's left on the other side of those percentages. But considering there aren't very many official Ainu people in Japan, the, the number is only a few tens of thousands, uh, haplogroup D, the gene, is definitely a lot more prevalent uh, than that, making up nearly half of all of Japanese. So the genetics lives on. Now would generally be the time that I would be giving economic figures, but uh, we're too early uh, to be giving those GDP figures for 1955 in Japan. I would like to dedicate this episode to the great Ishiro Honda, and where would we be as a Godzilla fandom without him? We're going to be seeing a lot more of Ishiro Honda's films in this wonderful season, including some of the greatest kaiju movies ever made, in my opinion. The next episode of this podcast will be 1957's The Mysterians. Yes, now we're going to crank it up into high gear and see how awesome these 50s movies are, the remainder of the 50s, and how great they're going to get throughout the 60s. The Mysterians is a big favorite of mine, as are many of these that we will be discussing. I'd like to send a shout-out to our patron, Sean Stiff, for donating at the Kaiju Visionary level, as he had for, has for many months, and thank you for your support. I really appreciate it. He's been a donor for a long time, and he was the only one who got to see a lot of our exclusive content the whole time that Nate and I were at G-Fest. Donating to this podcast is really worth it as you get the inside track about what's going on in the show. In 2016, I was determined to create something different in the G-Fan universe, and it has experienced success. I owe it to the listeners for giving me the extra energy and support to keep on going. If you'd like to send some feedback, I'd love to hear from you. The email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter and on Facebook. Kaiju Vision Radio is available on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, YouTube with scenic videos, and on kaijuvision.com. If you like the podcast, please donate on Patreon. I'm Brian Scherchel, and this is KVR, Kaiju Vision Radio. See you next time.